Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher bakarbanu mikol hamim, Venatan lanu et torato, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten haTorah. Amen. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Shalom, I just want to share uh, about Mashiach Yeshua being 33. This is actually going to be connected back to Parsha Achare Mot, which was at the point of this podcast that I'm currently recording uh, last week. So we are currently in Parsha Kedoshim, but I would like to hearken back to Parsha Achare Mot about this passage about uh, the goat to Azazel and the correlation that is brought down from the Ibn Ezra about the secret of 33. So the first thing I want to mention about 33, 33 is actually very significant as far as the Omer count because the Omer on the 33rd day of the Omer count is called Lag Ba Omer, which is just fancy for saying Lamed Gimel, which is 33 in the Hebrew language, uh, as far as what letters you could use to spell out 33 as far as the gematria goes. And it says, Lagba Omer is a Jewish holiday celebrated on a 33rd day of the counting of the Omer, which occurs on the 18th day of the Hebrew month of ER. While we're talking about ER, it's important to note ER is the second month after the redemption from Mitzrayim, which is Egypt. And that is the way of counting in antiquity before we had our Babylonian names given to our months, like Nisan, Er, Savan, Tammuz, so on and so forth. So uh, everything used to be counted from the point at which we were redeemed. And this is brought down via one of our fellow Avengers, Ish Pela, who is also known as Shlomo. And so, uh, shouts out to Shlomo for that drop. And he's been, he's kind of our go-to guy on the months anyway. So I should not be surprised that he was the one that brought this up. The reason why I bring that up is because when we're looking at counting things, you know, in the, in the Jewish mind, the counting is significant. You know, when things are taken stock and taken value, we, we count it, you know, hence why every day of the week has a number associated with it, except Shabbat. Shabbat actually has a name. Other than that, we have Yom Rishon, or what's known as First Day, which corresponds to Sunday, as far as our colloquial speaking of it. And then, you know, going on and so forth, all the way through Sixth Day, which is called Prep Day. And so, you know, we have the way that we number the days, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, Shabbat. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, Shabbat. You know, so like Shabbat is kind of like the central spoke of the wheel that everything spins around, you know, the central hub. There we go. And so it is with the months that the, the moment and the point of which we were redeemed, which began in the month of Nisan, the first month, you know, so we would count from there. So it'd be the second month from redemption, third month from redemption, which, by the way, is correlated to the month of Sivan, which is when we experienced Shavuot, which is also the same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2 and Shemot 19 and Shemot 24, like those are all connected. So those are all happening at the same time, just like uh, Parsha Bo and the gospel account where Mashiach is having his Seder meal with his Talmudim and going through unfair trials and being beaten and being uh, subjected to carrying his own uh, crucifixion stake. It correlates and corresponds uh, to Parsha Bo, also corresponds to Parsha Vayera, which is in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham and Yitzhak have to go up the mountain uh, to do a willing Corban, a willing sacrifice. So, yes, the whole thing about 
the son laying down his life uh, at the command and the desire and the will of the father. Yeah, that's that's all that. Okay, so this is our exodus. This is our receiving power from on high uh, and all of that. So without further ado, I would like to go ahead and drop the Kehert Humash, the Kehot Humash, as it's as actually called. I like to nickname everything. So just know the Kehert Humash is actually, if you want to look it up and buy it, it's called the Kehot Humash. So uh, in the interpolated uh, delineation of the verses, it starts in Vayikra, which is Leviticus chapter 16, and verse 8. And it goes a little something like this. I'm going to start with verse 7 and go into verse 8. It says, He must take the two goats and place them, one on his right and the other on his left, before God, i.e. at the entrance to the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Well, I, I'm going to interrupt because this verse says before God, i.e. at the entrance to the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Remember, the tent of meeting is called the Mishkan and the Mishkan has this opening into it where you would come from outside the Mishkan area, go through this opening and you'd be in the courtyard In the courtyard. There'd be the 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 bronze altar, the Mizbeach, where all of the Corbinotes are brought, the offerings. And then you have the shiny labor, and then you have the entrance to the actual tent itself. So the thing with this Yom Kippur, because this is what the two goats are for, it's for Yom Kippur, which is the atonement section of our salvation. And also the day in which the covenant was renewed with us originally. So renewal of the covenant salvation and atonement are all right here in Yom Kippur, which is directly parallel to Pesach, which is redemption, which is circumcision, like circumcision of our heart, also circumcision of the flesh for the men. This is also our us being brought into freedom, i.e. redemption, and then uh, the enemies of ours being destroyed. So, all of that. So when you put Pesach and Yom Kippur together, this is the fullness of the salvation that we have begun to receive and ultimately will culminate with the return of Mashiach Yeshua speedily in our days. Uh, and yes, I just want to let everyone know who are true followers of Messiah Yeshua and who walk in the Torah that we need to, as of yesterday and the day before that, we need to make the declaration and know, believe, and trust that we will see Mashiach in our lifetime and that we will yearn for it. We will cry out for Hashem to send Messiah. And yes, if we feel like that's a crazy thing to live up to, then Baruch Hashem, because Mashiach Yeshua said that he's been longing to gather us in for like how long? You know, he 2,000 years ago that, you know, he was coming into Yerushalayim, he came riding on a donkey because we weren't worthy of the redemption, which is all and found actually codified in Jewish writing in Tractate Sanhedrin 98. So if Hashem was ready to bring the redemption then, how much more so is he ready to bring it now? And how come it hasn't already happened? You know, these are all questions that we should take stock of and be done with asking and start doing. So just want you to lead out on that and be fully aware that through Messiah Yeshua and by walking in Torah, being filled with the spirit of Hashem, like it's, it's real, it's game time. So, you know, it's all right. It's good. So uh, continuing on with this verse, the fact that I wanted to stop and interrupt because to be before God is likened to being at the entrance to the courtyard to go into the tabernacle, which means if we're really deductive reasoning this, the way to make yourself be before God is to come to the entrance of his temple. And don't we know that we're the temple of God as brought down in Corinthians? And don't we know that Mashiach Yeshua is greater than the temple? As he says, I, I tell you something 
it, something greater than the temple is before you right now, you know, when he was giving his drosh. So to be before God is to be before the temple and to really elevate within our own understanding that we are before God, no matter where we are. And, you know, if we lived our lives thinking that we are before God and he is before us, like we're in each other's presence, how much of a dynamic does that change? Anyway, so this is where everything is taking place before God, like right before his face, if you will. It says a vessel containing two lots must be placed in front of him. One lot must be written, uh, quote unquote with the words for God and the other written for Azazel. Okay. So you got these two lots and they're in a vessel. One says for God, the other says for Azazel. And it says Azazel refers to any rocky desert cliff. That's what that name refers to. It also is the name of two fallen angels and we'll get to that later. Okay, with the help of Hashem. But it's mostly to denote that this is the place where this particular goat will meet its demise. So the rocky desert cliff that is sufficiently steep and high to kill an animal pushed off its edge. Because, by the way, the, the actual kosher way to do stoning is to take someone to a high place and push them off the cliff. And if they don't die from the fall, then you drop stones on them to actually bury them as well as in their misery. Very, very uh, brutal and uh, graphic, but that's how stoning worked. So this whole picking up rocks and throwing them at someone, that is not how you stone people. I grew up with that understanding. And, you know, when you actually read the word of God, you finally find out that that is not how you do it. So the way that Stephen was stoned, that's not the kosher way to stone anyone. So this just lets you know the depravity and the maliciousness of the, uh, the act that took place in, literally in Sefer of Acts, the book of Acts, the account of Acts that talks about the martyrdom of Stephen. So that's just something that we should all uh, take note of. Okay, so now, moving on to our key verse, verse 8. It says, Aharon must then draw both lots from this vessel, one with his right hand and one with his left. Okay? So, Aharon must place these lots upon the goats, one lot for God and the other lot for Azazel. Placing the lot in his right hand, on the goat at his right, and the lot in his left hand, on the goat at his left, as follows. Okay, so he's standing in front of the goats, and he's got the two lots, and he places the lots like the way that, um, you know, Yaakov, Jacob, when he was going to bless Ephraim and Menashe, the two sons of Yosef, you know, uh, Yosef sat Ephraim and Menashe according to their birth order before Yaakov to actually make sure that as he stuck his hands out, that he would put his right hand on uh, Menashe and his left hand on Ephraim. But Yaakov crossed his hands, ensuring that the firstborn blessing the right hand blessing would go to Ephraim. So there's a whole picture here that you can kind of see what it's like with the, the right and the left and who's who goes where and what hand does what. So anyway, I bring up the right and left as we're talking about this because when you read about uh, Matthew chapter 25, Starting in 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
Now, it's important to note that Passover is all about bringing your lamb that was selected for your Pesach offering, your Paschal offering. But when the original mitzvah is given, you can take one from the flock, whether it be a kid of the goats or a, a lamb. OK, so you can take a goat or a lamb actually for your Passover. Interesting to note that Messiah Yeshua was both the goat and the lamb as far as types and shadows go, because, you know, his his binding of himself, him willingly offering himself for us. Because remember, no one killed Yeshua. He laid his life down willingly, just like we talked about. The precedent of this is Genesis chapter 22. Abraham didn't kill Yitzhak. Yitzhak willingly offered his life. And this is the, the account we read every morning before we actually recite the offering liturgy uh, in our Siddur, in our prayers. So we learn that all the korbanot, all the sacrifices, point back to the original Akedah. And remember, the original Akedah, which is the original binding of the son by the father, because the son willingly laying his life down, that all is what the offerings uh, connotate. So if you're going to bring a peace offering, if you're going to bring an Ola offering, like a whole burnt offering, if you're going to bring a fellowship offering, a Thanksgiving offering, so on and so forth, those are all facets of the original offering, which is the son who was bound. And Midrash Rabbah I believe it's 56.3, but if not, uh, it is definitely Parsha Vayera uh, talking about the Akedah that Midrash Rabbah brings down that Yitzhak carried the wood like one who would carry his own crucifixion stake. So if that isn't a big enough picture to tell us that, you know, the original Akedah is a crucifixion that is undergone by the son who willingly gave away his life. So that's what all the temple offerings and sacrifices point back to. So if you offered any of those sacrifices in the temple, you would just be affirming your faith in the original offering of the son. Now, when you read Genesis 22, you understand that there is a substitution for Isaac but even though the substitute is actually offered, it is considered as if Isaac was actually offered. Now, what was offered is what's called a ram, which was actually a ram that existed before creation. So before creation, there was a lamb who is a ram that was slain before the foundations. And this is the actual offering that was brought forth at the original quote-unquote crucifixion, i.e. the Akedah, the binding of the sun. So with that being the case, this is a picture of what Mashiach actually does in the gospel accounts, that when Messiah is pinned and nailed to the crucifixion stake, it is truly the ultimate fulfillment of the original Akedah. You know, like what took place in Genesis 22 is what the Gospels pretty much climax about as far as the sun being offered. So with all that being said, all the nations are gathered back to Matthew 25, 32. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right. Remember, the right side is for Hashem. And then it says, and the goats will be on his left. And remember, the goat on the left is to Azazel, which is sent off and all of that kind of stuff. And it says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you visited me. The righteous will answer him, Adonai, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
When did we see you a stranger or take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Side note, Parsha Kedoshim teaches about loving your neighbors. You love yourself is that we need to understand that, especially as Yehudim, we're all considered many parts of one body. Yes, that is codified in Jewish commentary. And it also is mentioned that, you know, we the reason why we need to love one another as we love ourselves is because everyone who is a part of the Jewish congregation, the Jewish people, they're literally extensions of who we are. OK, so there's that. So it's interesting. Yeshua says that any that whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine. So Yeshua gets it that any of the least of these, they're literally my brothers. They are the people who are who I consider to be extensions of myself. OK, so back to this verse. Now he says, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you or Slika. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they too will reply, I don't know. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? The king will answer, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So that is important to note that there is an idea of the sheep to the right and the goats to the left. And it actually ties back to Yom Kippur. Okay. So now I'm going to bring in Benny B who drops this commentary. I actually made an elucidation to it or a short elucidation to it in a previous podcast, but I'm putting everything all in one place. So this is all going to be about why 33. Why is the tradition held that Yeshua is 33? And if that is truly the case, then why is 33 so significant? So understanding again, the 33rd day of counting the Omer is a literally a Jewish celebration uh, developed over the centuries, uh, specifically after the time of Rabbi Akiva. Uh, there was so much basis hatred going on during uh, with with amongst his yeshiva, his Talmudim, and there were plagues and all sorts of martyrdom going on, thousands of observant Jews dying and things like that. And uh, with the onset of Lagba Omer, uh, during that particular time period, uh, one one of those years, it pretty much is the end of the plagues and the end of people dying and they begin to celebrate. And now this has become whenever we count the Omer every year, that for the first 33 days, there is a period of mourning. And so different communities observe that different communities don't. We as Lapide, we do not uh, because we're always in a constant state of eradicating baseless hatred. And furthermore, our our Rebbe, you know, Mashiach Yeshua, he taught us that we should be known by our love. We shouldn't be known for being uh, people of ill repute or people of baseless hatred and things of that nature. So if we live in what the reality of what caused uh, Lagba Omer, like the end of the basis hatred and all that, if we live in that reality, there's no reason for us to mourn because we are truly participating in being with the bridegroom of <clears throat> Slika as far as we're doing these things. We're actualizing it. 
you know, and so there's nothing technically for us to point back to and say, you know, we were not in sync and we kept dying because we hated each other. And it's just like, well, you know, there's a there's a resolution for that. And it's called basis love. And it's called binding and attaching yourself to the Lapid Mashiach Yeshua. And as you do that, you actually begin to build up the spiritual temple because living stones built up into Hashem's spiritual temple. You know, Kepha writes about this. So anyway, just a little side note on Lagba Omer. It's a beautiful thing that is uh, being done, but it's also something that we need to actually take the principles and concepts from to actually, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, shine more light of Torah into, you know, so Rukashim. All right. So where do we get the idea that Yeshua is 33? Well, I was searching through the Basora. This is pretty much the verse I came up with. Luke 3, 23 says Yeshua was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son of Yosef. So literally Yeshua ben Yosef. Okay. Cause that's one of Messiah's names and, uh, in Jewish commentary. Yeshua, or not Yeshua, but Messiah ben Yosef. So Yeshua being Messiah and being the one who is ben Yosef. So there's that. And it says the son of Heli. So when you really look at this verse, we take the tradition that Yeshua's ministry was three years. And I meant to source this, source this out, but sources hatred until proven sourced. But I would like to shout out that the one who shared this information to me, his name is Stav Soldat. He is our Shomer version of the Winter Soldier, who is also a person who is studying the uh, the inner workings, the meanings, the office, the information etc 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 so on and so forth of sofering being a sofer like a person who is a writer of torah scrolls and he says that there is a there is an idea or there is information of some sort that points back to the fact that actually the it took 3 years to actually do a full round of the torah portions so what we do in a year now for Torah portions and antiquity, it used to be three years, which is significant being the fact that Messiah Yeshua is the living Torah, like the Torah taking on flesh, as Yochanan chapter one puts it. And if you think about that, Yeshua's ministry is a full span of the Torah portions, i.e. if he ministered for three years, it would have been along with the Torah portions. And we know from our current experience of our observance in Judaism that the way we live life week in and week out, day in, day out, Shabbat in, Shabbat out, everything flows with the Torah portions. So would it be any different? You know, it could be. Yes, I, I agree. It could be. But if we really, you know, think about it, Yeshua's life was like Torah portions you know, going through a round of Torah portions. So he would have been in his first year, so to speak, as a Torah scroll when he became 33. He would have been one year old as far as a cycle of Torah portions. But I digress from all of that. But, you know, there's this idea that he ministered for three years and he was about 30 when he began his ministry, according to Luke chapter three, verse 23. And I don't think that is something that is just lightly written into the Basora account. Dr. Luke is a doctor, okay? Emphasis on the Dr. Luke. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't just be like, oh yeah, you know, just nobody's going to care about this at all. So I'm just going to write this down. Like, no, he's just like, just going to be accurate. You know, it is such and such time in these hours and the the uh, patient is undergoing these symptoms and this is the 
you know, course of action that we're planning to take. Like doctors, I mean, they, they document things and they don't just lightly do it. You may not be able to understand it because doctor's handwriting, just kidding. But anyway, so now Benny B, which is Ben Burton, a E I E or AKA ladder of Jacob. And he brings down on Parsha Kari Mote this commentary. Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra makes an extremely cryptic comment on the passage for Vayikra 16.8, talking about our two goats. And it says, if you're able to understand the esoteric meaning of that which is written after the word Azazel, you will also know the esoteric meaning behind the goat sent to Azazel and the esoteric meaning of the name, of its name. For there are Havarim, i.e. other parallel examples for it in scripture. And I will reveal a little of the secret through a hint. The hint is when you are 33, you will know it. So just on surface value, the Ibn Ezra from on Vayikra 16.8 is basically pointing to the fact that we can learn something about this this particular ceremony part of Yom Kippur that correlates with 33. We'll be able to understand some esoteric teachings about what is Azazel, what is significant about the goat sent to Azazel, and all sorts of things like that. So, Benny B continues, the Ramban explains the passage as follows. Now, Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, the man of faithful spirit who conceals a matter, but I will be the talebearer who reveals his secret. For our sages have already revealed it to us in many places. So Ramban is just coming out heavy hidden, just being like, you know what? Ibn Ezra says that this is a hidden meaning, but I tell you it's actually revealed. So here we go. The he-goat, this is an allusion to Asaph, as it is stated, but my brother Asaph is a hairy man, which is actually the word se'er, which is actually the word used for the goat, which is a se'er. And this is found in Bereshit, which is Genesis chapter 27, verse 11. It says, now, Ibn Ezra has hinted to you that you will know the esoteric meaning of Azazel when you get to the verse they shall no longer slaughter their offerings to the demons, which is the 33rd verse after Azazel's first meaning. This is the Ramban on Vayikra. Okay, so he's commenting on this verse. Okay, so it says it may be a complete coincidence that the reference to 33 was the likely age of Yeshua's death. This is back to Benny B commenting on what he just found. It says the age of 33 was a hint, according to Ramban, to skip down to the 33rd verse where it says that Yisrael will no longer make offerings to Se'erim, which is the plural of Se'er, which remember Se'er, hairy man, which is talking about Asaph. Se'er is also the word for goat. Okay, so Se'erim is the multiple or the plural of all those. It says that is a type of goat demon. Okay, so when you put it in the plural form, that's what that pretty much points to. It says, however, Ramban does note that the secret meaning is that the illusion or that this is an allusion to Asaph. This brings us to two important questions. Is the Ibn Ezra referring derogatorily to Yeshua of Nazareth? And is to Azazel, is that goat a sacrifice to a goat demon? So he says, we will answer the last question first. We must first ask who or what is Azazel. Rashi interprets the words as a jagged place. The text Apocalypse of Abraham says that Azazel is the unclean bird that tried to take away Abraham's sacrifice. And this is found in First Enoch. Uh, it says, First Enoch 10, 8, the whole world has been corrupt, corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel to him ascribe all sin. Okay, so there's that. 
And it says the sages taught that Azazel is the celestial minister, the angelic minister, if you will, of Asav or Edom, i.e. the Satan. And it says the goat to Azazel has been misinterpreted as sacrifice or offering. This was not a sin offering as was as it was not sacrificed, nor was it ritually slaughtered in the temple. Okay, so that's pretty much a clear. This is not a sacrifice and it's not an offering of any kind. It says the Torah specifically prohibits this, which is cited by Ibn Ezra. So our verse now, the 33rd verse after Vayikra 16.8 happens to be Vayikra 17.7. Let's read that from the Kehert Humash interpolated. This is what that one says. By restricting the venue of their sacrifices to the tabernacle, which if you just take that phrase alone, that shows you that the only way to offer sacrifices is in the venue of the tabernacle. So anything offered outside of it is technically not a sacrifice. Now, I know what you might think. Well, Yeshua wasn't offered in the temple, so how can he be a sacrifice? Well, again, the sacrifices point to him. Okay, so he doesn't have to fit the prescriptions of that. The sacrifice has to fit the prescriptions of him. But it's also important to note next to that, that the whole mountain is called Mount Moriah, okay, or the Holy Temple Mount, i.e., Jerusalem, which is where the temple will be built. And when you look at where Messiah Yeshua was offered, he was offered on that mountain, you know, and literally there's a there's a road that many people would pass by because, again, he wasn't crucified on some crazy high cliff. Because, again, if you're going to read that sign, you would not be able to see it if you're hundreds and hundreds of yards away and specifically having to look up a hillside. So the sign that was posted above his head that said, you know, Yeshua had Nazar Yeshua the Nazarene, you know, the king of the Jews, Yeshua Hanotri, Melech Yehudim, like that would have been the Hebrew of it. So um if you look at that, okay, why why post the sign if people can't read it? Unless he was posted unless Messiah Yeshua was crucified in a place where people could see it and read it, i.e. the Roman way, which would be putting him on a stake at eye level so that you could literally walk by and see him, you know, just a little bit above eye level kind of thing. Kind of like a mezuzah on the door, door, doorpost, you know, you put the mezuzah up a little bit in the upper third of the doorpost. And it's interesting that you pass by that and you're about eye level, maybe a little uh, higher depending on your height. But, you know, there's all that to take into account that you're passing by it. And Mashiach Yeshua would have been crucified like a mezuzah, you know, just on a post. Which is cool because if you think about the way that the Sephardic custom is to put a mezuzah on the doorpost, they put it, you know, straight up and down. Whereas Ashkenazi would put it, you know, at a slant. So there's all that. But anyway, uh, I continue here. Uh, Vayikra 17.7 says the Israelites will no longer be able to slaughter sacrifices to the demons after which they have become accustomed to stray due to the corrupting influence of the Egyptians. This will be an eternal rule for them, which will apply to all sacrifices for all their generations. So it's really cool to know that, you know, we're told that all of Israel, everyone who left in the Exodus from Egypt, they were all considered to be idolaters. And it's just kind of like, how can you call the people who were circumcised and who ate of the Pesach lamb and who Hashem brought out of Egypt? How can you call them all idolaters? And it's just like, well, this is the case in point that we were so accustomed to offering to demons that it's just kind of like, that's idolatry. But anyway, back to Benny B after quoting Vayikra 17.7. It says the goat sent to Azazel, the Azazel goat is sent to the wilderness 
And if it returned, it was deemed a bad omen. So eventually they took the goat to the wilderness and kicked it off a cliff. Because, you know, the thing is, you put all your sins, you know, on this goat and you send it away. So it's like casting out your sin. But if the goat didn't, like, die in the wilderness or something and it somehow made it w its way back to the camp, it's just like, well, your sin that you threw away, they now came back for you. And now what are you going to do? So it's like, well, no, if we take care of it, then it won't come back. Hence why it has to die such a horrible death. Now... Tractate Yoma 67a brings down that the person who attended this goat to go out into the wilderness, because, you know, the goat didn't just go by itself. There was a person designated to go with this goat. And this is what would happen. It says he divided the thread of crimson wool, tied one half to the rock and the other half between its horns and pushed it from behind and it went rolling down. And before it had reached halfway down the hill, it was dashed to pieces. So it says the wilderness and desert places are the domain of demonic forces. And isn't it interesting that Yeshua was sent out into the wilderness, you know, after his mikvah to overcome those forces you know, culminating in his 40 days of fasting, which is likened to the time that Moshe spent on the top of the mountain to receive the Torah, both times. One of those times, because he went uh, three times total, one of those times, the middle time, the second time he went up for 40 days, Moshe, second day, he, second time he went up for 40 days was to ask God to forgive us for the sin of the golden calf. And then the third time he goes back up with the stone tablets that Hashem rewrites the Torah on. So there's all that to think about that, you know, what happened in three trips, you know, Yeshua did in one. And he did it not even in Hashemayim. He did it in, in the earthly realm of the desert places, which is the domain of the demonic forces. So you have this picture here of literally that which used to trip us up, that which pulled us into idolatry, that which caused us to be in bondage and exile and slavery, Mashiach Yeshua started with that and took it out. So, building a bigger and bigger case here, and it says the goat to Azazel was like a messenger that returned the sins of the people back to their demonic source away from Israel. This was as if to say, no thanks, sin, and the source of sin. Now, for the second question. Here we go. So, is this something derogatory towards Yeshua? As far as the 33 and the, the verses 16, 8, and 17, 7? Like, what is this whole thing with Asav and all that? Well, here we go. It says, rabbinic literature... It is well known in rabbinic literature that Asav refers to Christianity. Rabbi Ari Khan brings this down. The idea of the two goats is intrinsically related to the personalities of Jacob and Esau, which is Asav. It says, identical on the outside, but so different in terms of their essence. The idea of twins, twins, who are opposites is a familiar theme in Torah. The most famous twins in the Torah are, of course, Jacob and Esau. They were complete opposites, one good and the other evil. No one could ever confuse them. On the other hand, perhaps they did possess some similarities. This is Rashi on Bereshit 25, 27. And it tells us that until the age of 13, they were indistinguishable. 13, by the way, is the, uh, is the age of accountability for a Jewish man. This is when the rubber meets the road. Are you going to walk in Torah or are you going to do your own thing? Hence, this is the part where Jacob and Esau became distinguished. Up until that point, they were you couldn't tell which one was which. Which is funny because... Esau or Esau is described as a hairy man. It didn't say anything about Yaakov being described like that. And then Esau was called red, you know, and ruddy 
and Yaakov was never described like that. So it's just kind of like, so did they really look alike? Because when you really get down to it, when you look at Christianity versus Judaism, when you look at the Jacob and Asaph picture, that is one is completely distinguished from the other. But yet they're confused at the same time because it's kind of like, oh, I wish those Jews would just, you know, come to faith in Messiah. And it's just like, you know, all these kinds of things to really kind of go back and forth. But it's like, no, it's really just Jacob. It's really just the goat that's on the right hand. It's really just the lamb that's on the right hand. And it's interesting to note that Jacob was also called the lamb of God in Jewish commentary. So who's on the right and who's on the left? And obviously that is indictment on so many levels, but it's important for us to know that. Quick thing on, you know, the demonic influence and things like that. I want to bring down Legends of the Jews 1, uh, 3, section Tet, which is 9. It says, this is the fall of the angels. The depravity of mankind, which began to show itself in the time of Enosh, had increased monstrously in the time of his grandson Yared, which is Jared, by the reason of fallen angels. From, so from Enosh, from Enosh to Jared, there was this uh, rapid decline that happened. And it says, when the angels saw the beautiful, attractive daughters of men, they lusted after them and spoke, we will choose wives for ourselves only from among the daughters of men and beget children with them. Because it's important to note the disturbing things that were happening during this time is bestiality. So yes, mankind was mating with animals. Animals were mixing species. And oh, isn't this so relevant to Parsha Kedoshim, which talks about all this kind of stuff. But anyway, I digress. So creation was highly corrupted during this time. So these fallen angels, though, they're like, no, 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 we'll, we'll just stick with you know, daughters of men. We will be get children with them. We won't do any of that other depraved stuff. Just kind of like, okay. So it says their chief, which is Shem Chazai, which is one of the fallen angels. It says, I fear me. You will not put this plan of yours into execution. And I alone shall have to suffer the consequence of a great sin. Then they answered him and said, we will all swear on oath and we will bind ourselves separately and together, not to abandon the plan, but to carry it to to carry it through to the end. Two hundred angels descended to the summit of Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon, and it says, which owes its name to the very to this very occurrence. So how did Mount Hermon get his name, get its name? It says, because they bound themselves to their, they bound themselves there to fulfill their purpose. So this is a place of binding. This is a place where, you know, the fallen angels descended and said, hey, we're going to uphold this oath. And it says, on the penalty of harem, which is anathema, which I was looking up the word anathema, and it's about the, uh, let's see, the, the judgment, if you will, that's here. Let me go back to, yeah, it is the something or someone that vehemently dislikes. So like a formal curse. So if you have like a harem, which is like a ban or something like that. Okay. So they said that they would, uh, undergo this on this mountaintop. Okay. It says under the leadership of 20 captains, they defiled themselves with the daughters of men unto whom they taught charms, conjuring formulas, how to cut roots and the efficacy of plants. The issue from these mixed marriages was a race of giants, 3000 L's tall, who consumed the possessions of men. When all had vanished and they could obtain nothing more from them, the giants turned against men and devoured many of them. And the remnant of men began to trespass, i.e. violate, against birds, beasts, reptiles, 
fish, eating their flesh and drinking their blood. Again, Parashat Kedoshim talks about this, you know, like don't be doing all these vile things. And Parashat Kare Mot particularly talks about not eating blood and all the creeping things. Uh, which Kedoshim actually talks about don't eat creeping things. So both of these two Torah portions together just so fit, you know. Continuing on, it says, The earth complained about the impious evildoers, impious evildoers, but the fallen angels continued to corrupt mankind. And it says, Azazel taught men how to make slaughtering knives, arms, shields, and coats of mail. Okay, so the goat that's all about going out to the wilderness and all of that is named after the place of a high jagged cliff where it will meet its demise, but also named after the fallen angel who taught men how to do warfare and all of that. So the reason we have swords that, by the way, need to be beaten into plowshares, may that day come soon in our time. Um, but that was brought on by one of the fallen angels who is named as this goat that is sent out into the wilderness. Continuing on, it says he showed them metals and how to work them and armlets and all sorts of trinkets and the use of rouge for the eyes and how to beautify the eyelids, how to ornament themselves with the rarest and most precious jewels and all sorts of paints. The chief of the fallen angels, Shamchazai, instructed them in exorcisms and how to cut roots. Armaros taught them how to raise spells. And further name, it says divination from the stars. Another name says astrology. And the, when I say another name, I'm talking about the different uh, fallen angels names. And it says uh, they were taught astrology. Another one taught uh, augury from the clouds. Another one taught signs of the earth. Another one taught the signs of the sun. Another one taught the signs of the moon. And it says, while all these abominations defile the earth, the pious Enoch lived in a secret place. None among men knew his abode or what had become of him. For he was sojourning with the angel watchers and holy ones. Once he heard the call addressed to him, Enoch, you scribe of justice, go into the watchers of the heavens who have left the high heavens, the eternal place of holiness, defiling themselves with women, doing as men, taking unto themselves wives, or taking wives unto themselves, and casting themselves into the arms of destruction upon the earth or upon earth, go and proclaim unto them that they shall neither, they shall find neither peace nor pardon. For every time they take joy in their offspring, they shall see the violent death of their sons and sigh over the ruin of their children. They will pray and supplicate evermore, but never shall they obtain to mercy or shalom. Okay. So I brought all that up to say that when we talk about Mashiach being 33, the epitome of the esoteric meaning of the goat sent to Azazel, we have this picture of returning back like is put, like it's put down here by, uh, let's see, by the commentary of Benny B where he says, this is not a sin offering as it was not sacrificed nor ritually slaughtered. And it says the Torah prohibits this. And then it says this is our no thank you to sin. You know, and so I uh, hear here it is. It was as if to say no thanks sin and the source of sin for. OK, so that's why we do the whole Azazel and that's the connection to 33. So what ultimately am I saying? Yeshua being 33 is all about the fact of him being the embodiment of the end of baseless hatred, the end of demonic forces and input into our life. And if we begin to enter into this celebration through his death, burial and resurrection and truly walk in the life and the resurrection, 
now we're bringing ourselves to a place where no longer will we be caught astray in idolatry and adulterous activity by offering ourselves to the other realm, not the realm of holiness, but the realm of evil and wickedness. So with that being said, um, there is lots more to say about this, but just know that the 33 is all about this goat that is supposed to be sent to the demonic realm that will uh, appease it. And furthermore, through Mashiach Yeshua, the appeasement comes in the form of that's it. We're done. That's the end. So this is why for us who are in Messiah Yeshua, we're made new creations and we're free from bondage. We're free from sin. We're free from captivity and we're free to truly live for God without, i.e. pimping ourselves out. Excuse the, the crassness of that phrase, but you know, through Messiah Yeshua, the end of us being pimped out to death and sin and all of its devices have now began to come to an end. And so what we must do every single day is live in the reality of that renewal. We have to renew ourselves and our no thank you to sin. Every single moment of our lives, we have a choice. Are we going to sin or are we going to not? And how fitting is it with Parsha Kedoshim that Hashem opens that Torah portion with be holy as I am holy, i.e. follow me and keep my commandments, not because I command you, but because you desire to be like me, which means you do things before you're actually commanded to do it. And regardless of if it's written Torah or not, you do it for the sake of righteousness. You do it for the like righteousness is in it, as in that this is right, not that this is like, Righteousness, like, oh, yeah, because I follow God and I keep his commandments, like I'm righteous. No, I I do this because it is right. I I.e. Yeshua says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so it's just like, of course. And if Hashem tells me to be holy because he is holy. Isn't the whole fact of me being resurrected to newness of life in Messiah Yeshua like living in that reality, living with that power exerted within me, is it not to be an imitator of God? Just saying. And if we're going to be an imitator of God, that means we walk in righteousness. That means we walk in his commandments. That means we study his Torah. That means we seek him out and begin to make those things manifest in our life. And we tell sin, no thank you. And we tell idolatry, yeah, you can stay where you're at. I'm going to be over here on the side of Team Kedusha, Team Holiness. So with that being said, what do we know? What do we know? Baruch Abah B'Shem Adonai. Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet, Vekaye olam natabetokainu, Barukata Aronai, Notain Torah. Amen. So, this is just an appendage to the previous podcast about Yeshua and 33. And uh, this is our Avenger. Uh, Zippor Aish, and I just wanted to uh, share with everyone just a little insight that she shared with me about uh, Elul and about the time of repentance that uh, Mashiach started his ministry with. If you will take note that there is a phrase that says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is literally prime time for saying, you know, this is like the month of Elul. Because during the month of Elul, we begin what's called the 40 days of Teshuvah. And this is when Moshe went up the mountain to receive the second set of tablets. So obviously that has major implications. And so she brings this down. And I just wanted to share this with everyone. So Baruch Hashem. And again, just note that this doesn't have to be taken uh, as like the only commentary because again, there are 70 uh, faces to Torah. So there are at least 67 more interpretations to go. 
And uh, this is just the beginning of it. So, Brukashem. So you're probably thinking, oh no, not again. She's saying something again. But Baruch Hashem, I'm at minute 30. And I was thinking as you were discussing, you know, when Yeshua began his ministry, etc. And, you know, trying to figure out from the clues in uh, the Basora. And, you know, when Yeshua came to the Jordan, Yochanan was baptizing people into repentance. Well, that tells us that it was, you know, during the, during the month of Elul, possibly, uh, where he was, um, where everybody was, everything on their mind was repentance and preparation for uh, Yom Teruach and for Yom Kippur. And so if he began his ministry during the same season of which he was born, per se, then it would make sense. It would make sense that um, he would be about 33 and a half, maybe, um, at the time of Pesach. So, you know, just all very interesting in compiling um, all of those little details. I mean, some people would call that trivia, but I find it fascinating because it creates a continuity. But, you know, Yeshua <clears throat> started his ministry during the time of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Anyway, just a really loving this particular episode. Bye.